It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello, everyone. Show here once again on the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in and listening to me ramble on about movies. We've tackled a lot of movies over the past few episodes. I think we've done eight movies in the past two outings. So I thought it'd be nice to, you know, take it down a notch, slow down the pace, and only do one. Of course, that one movie has to be a good one. And of course, we're tackling Mission Impossible Fallout, which I've now seen twice, once, you know, normally and once in IMAX, amazingly enough. So we'll get to the analysis of Fallout shortly. And straight ahead on the podcast, we have an interview with Tim Grierson of the Grierson and Leach podcast, also the U.S. film critic for Screen Daily. I think I also want to talk a little bit about Mission Impossible as a franchise. There, this is the sixth entry in the Mission Impossible franchise, starting with the, you know, Mission Impossible as it is in 1996, Tom Cruise's first adventure as Ethan Hunt. But right now, before we get to talking about the series and the latest entry in that series, I wanted to talk about something a little different. I was having a conversation with my younger brother and my cousin last night. It's my brother's 20th birthday today, and we had a little celebration to him. So happy birthday, Addy. Love you. But uh, we were talking about the topic of video game critics versus movie critics. Right. Uh, It it came up in the context of Total Biscuit, who apparently is a well-known video game critic. And he unfortunately passed away this year, earlier this year, from complications due to cancer. Right. And apparently he's a relatively famous YouTube video game person. And we got got to talking about Total Biscuit versus Roger Ebert, right, who passed away a number of years ago. And my cousin and my younger brother both of whom are younger than me. My cousin is only a few years younger than me, but the two of them were talking about how Total Biscuit is one of the most famous reviewers ever. And I said, hold on. Roger Ebert is probably the most famous critic for anything ever. I'm talking, I'm not just talking about movies and video games. I'm talking all the other scenes, arenas you can review things for, right? Music, books, theater, food, cars, whatever, right? Roger Ebert is a household name, okay? And we got into this argument, and they, all, they both rolled their eyes at me, like, oh, you just like movies. Okay, fair enough. I am someone who likes mo- movies more than the average person. That is totally fair. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all movie critics are household names, right? Peter Travers, does everyone know who that is, right? Probably not. Not everyone will know who Peter Travers is, right? So the Rolling Stone, of course. But I know that because I love movies, right? So don't get me wrong. Like I said, I'm not saying that all movie critics are household names. Because after Roger Ebert, I don't think there is one, right? But I don't think it's a stretch to say that of all movie critics, most people who have gone to see a movie, people have probably seen Roger Ebert's name stretched up on the screen at least once, right? He basically invented the phrase two thumbs up, right? Is there is there a person alive out there who has not heard that? Two thumbs up is used in almost every single form of entertainment, media, whatever. If you, someone says two thumbs up, everyone knows exactly what that means, right? Of course, we can't mention two thumbs up without mentioning Gene Siskel, who was uh, Ebert's partner for the Chicago Tribune for a while, right? And of course, they co-hosted that PBS show, Sneak Previews. They had the variously named At The Movies programs. And Siskel died in 1999. And as I mentioned, Roger Ebert passed away in, in 2003. And Gene Siskel, I think, is up there as well. But because Roger Ebert lived until 2013, I think his name is a little more commonly used for people who are a little older, right? I mean, not that I'm like super old or anything, but I think his name right now is a little more well-known than Gene Siskel's name, even though they're both legends in the movie critic industry, right? But what I'm saying is, because they invented two thumbs up, because they invented it for when they both agreed on a movie, right? There is no such comparison for video games, right? I I play a lot of video games, and I have played a lot of video games over my lifetime. I did not know who Total Biscuit was until I read a headline saying, video game journalist, video game critic has died due to complications of cancer, because that's really sad, and you know, condolences to his family and whatnot, but 
Let's not pretend like he is on the level of Roger Ebert, okay? Is there anyone alive who is on the same level as Roger Ebert? I don't think so, right? And I mean, let's let's take a step back, though, away from Total Biscuit and Roger Ebert, and we'll look at the industries themselves, right? Because don't get me wrong, I love video games, right? I just mentioned I played a lot. I've been playing a lot of Sea of Thieves recently, right? But I think the industry of video games is a lot smaller than people realize. And not only is it smaller than people realize, but then you want to compare it to the film industry? So that's a little thought experiment, right? How many AAA titles have come out this year to date, right? To the end of July, let's say. Let's say Monster Hunter World, Sea of Thieves, like I mentioned, Far Cry 5. You have all the sports games, like MLB The Show 18, which is out now. And of course, the new versions of Madden and FIFA, which I am excited for, come out later this month, if not early in August. We'll count them just to be, you know, just to include them. God of War for the PS4, Detroit Become Human for PS4, Mario Tennis Aces for the Switch, the No Man's Sky re-release of the Xbox One. That seems to be like the big crop of games that came out in 2018 thus far. I mean, there are some other ones coming out later this later this year. Red Dead Redemption 2, really excited for that. The Spider-Man game for, at Sony. You know, they had, they had some a lot of a lot of games at E3 this year, which have yet to come out, certainly, right? But let's just count the ones that are out today, and I'll do the same for movies. The movies that are out to date, right? That's not exactly an inspiring group of games, right? Like, there are some good games in there. I mean, I think all those games are above average. Sure, become human god. What a, what a snore fest. What a, what, a, what a snooze fest, right? My goodness. But do you think, even the good games, do you think they're lighting the world on fire in terms of sales? Now, let me spoil it for you. They're not, right? GTA V, I think, was the biggest media release ever, right? And it's because... It came out on, like, what, a bajillion different platforms? I don't know. Would it would it be a stretch for me to say that Avengers Infinity War's total box office take by itself dwarfed every single one of those games I just mentioned put together that have come out this year in 2018? I don't think it would be a stretch. Even Deadpool 2 would probably qualify in that category in terms of outgrossing them all together. Like, come on. Video games are, are a small industry. As much as I love them, they're a small industry. And I, I do have to admit... Film has a certain inherent advantage over video games because it's a people that a medium that more people, I should say, can access more readily. It's certainly easier to play video games today than it ever has been before, but in order to play an Xbox or a PlayStation or a Switch game, even to play a game on PC, right, you have to have shelled out several hundred dollars up front to have a system in the first place, and that's before you ever even purchase the video game by itself. By comparison, of course, films cost anywhere between 12 to 18 bucks a pop in terms of individual tickets, even if you want to include the cost of concessions. It's what, like a $25, $30 ticket per person or trip per person to the movies versus a $79.99 video game purchase here in Canada? It's just so much more accessible to go to the movies than it is to buy a video game. And then on top of that, you have the fact that the film industry is so much older than video games, right? I mean, how old is the video game industry really, do you think? Maybe 45 years? Started in the mid-70s, let's say? And that's with Pong? It didn't really get going for a few more years when the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, as they call it, right? And again, by comparison, the film industry started back in the 1890s with the projection of the Lumiere Brothers films in Paris, it wasn't even until 1910 that the actors started to receive credit for their screen roles. So even if you want to discount the the screening of the Lumiere Brothers films in Paris in the 1890s, let's start at 1910. That's a long damn time ago, right? Even the Academy Awards just celebrated their 90th birthday last time around. So I think it's pretty safe to say the film industry absolutely dwarfs the video game one. And again... I'm not saying that all movie critics are household names. I know a bunch because I love movies more than the average person probably, but let's not compare them to video game critics. Anyone with a computer can be a, you know, quote-unquote video game critic. Total Biscuit was the first major one, I guess, and with the rise of Twitch and live streaming, perhaps it's easier to look at the numbers and say, oh man, so many people are interacting with this. Oh man, I have so many viewers on Twitch, but let's be real here. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, their impact on film criticism in terms of how their reviews were written and spoken, the programs they hosted, what it meant to get a good rating from him before he passed on, is unparalleled in the review slash critic world. And that includes, like I mentioned, video games, movies, music, books, theater, food, cars, everything. And if we were to narrow it down to just movies versus video games, there is not a video game critic alive today. There is not a video game critic that has yet to be born that is even half as famous or influential to video games relative to Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel at Word of Movies. Like, come on.
Let's not pretend that they're in the same stratosphere, much less the same conversation, right? It's not nearly the same thing to get a bad review from Total Biscuit than it is to get a bad review from Roger Ebert. It's not the same thing because the industries are not the same. So maybe you might claim that this is a apples oranges thing. I don't think it is. I think you can compare the industries in terms of is it valid to say that one is famous and one is not? And I think it is because Roger Ebert is a household name. Gene Siskel perhaps has now faded a little bit from memory, even though I know who he is and everyone who goes watch everyone who really, 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 really likes movies probably knows who Gene Siskel is. But come on, let's not let's not start the whole oh video games are like they're an up and coming industry, if not you know an industry that's you know quote unquote there, but the film industry is so on another level than the video game one, it's not even funny. They're just not on the same level. You know, come on. You know, while I'm feeling a little fired up, I did actually want to talk about something else real quick, was the Incredibles 2 controversy, you know? Is it, maybe I should use that with an asterisk or, you know, in quotation marks, quote-unquote controversy. It seems that director Brad Bird has been fielding a lot of questions from, or maybe questions are the wrong word, just answering comments to him, tweets to him on social media about the coarse language, the foul language in The Incredibles 2. And having seen The Incredibles 2, I was, I mean, I did not expect there to be coarse slash foul language, but a lot of people have been tweeting at him saying, we're not buying the DVD now due to the foul language displayed by Disney and Pixar's Incredible 2. You would think that if any studio alive today could make a movie for children without profanity and disgusting displays of the English English language. It would be Pixar, but even they're not safe. Okay, well, I went and I rewatched the movie, not because of this, but mainly because the movie is a pleasure and a delight to watch, but I did rewatch the movie recently, and there is no coarse language. There is no inappropriate things. And then I realized, after I looked into it a little more on social media, the words people have an issue with are amazingly the words damn and oh my god. So the phrase oh my god and saying damn, he got away, damn, ah damn, I ran into the wall, I don't know, whatever they say, right? That's what people have issue with. I can't believe that. That... That is the most sanitized thing I had ever I have ever heard. I mean, do parents really think that if they hear their child say the F word, right, that they're gonna become a delinquent or something? I and and that's that's the F bomb, right? Like that's you know, F, saying shit or you know, crap are hardly on the same level as that, but I, and I still think saying an F-bomb is is fine. I mean, you probably, what, and so you don't want your kids saying that from a young age, I suppose, but it doesn't really matter. It's just a word. If you teach them the meaning of the word, they're not going to say it if you, like, do your job as a parent. But, I mean, I don't really understand. Like, why is that a bad thing for them to hear, damn and oh my god? Like, what... Are their child's virgin ears going to fall off? Like, are they going to, you know do something horrible and commit some kind of mass murder crime or something like that. Like I, I never really understood that. And if you're one of those people who really thinks that hearing the F word, much less hearing damn or oh my God, then you know what? You're a real, you're a real plug. You're a real tool. You're a moron because that's just the dumbest crap that is the dumbest shit I have ever heard in my entire life. I'm sorry. Like, you, your children are going to hear far worse than that. I remember I got into a conversation with this with one of my old instructors, and there was some cussing that was picked up, not intentionally, but it was in some from some football game, and some player got too close to the referee's mic, and he was having a disagreement with another player, and he said, yeah, you, well, you know what? F you, man. And the, the actual F-bomb made it onto air, right? And I don't cuss in this podcast, because not because I think it's like, you know, I, I don't not, I'm trying to be sanitized or I, I think it's proper, but mainly because iTunes has some weird, like explicit rating that if you, if you drop an F-bomb, you have to click it and then it gets sorted into another category and this whole thing. And you know what? I just thought it'd be best to avoid that completely, but it's weird. Then I, I always thought that parents just clutch onto the strangest 
tangential things. Like your children are not going to become delinquents if they hear a few profanity-laden words. Like you're telling me you yourself have never said that in front of your kids? I've heard my parents cuss a lot, and you know what? I turned out just fine. And so did my brother and sister, and so did the rest of my entire goddamn family. So I just, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really have a point to this, to be completely honest, other than that I think that sanitizing your language to the point of saying that damn and oh my god are bad then i think you probably probably need to re-examine you know some priorities in your life especially especially when it comes to movies showtime okay i've spent a lot of time talking about stuff that has nothing to do with mission impossible but the rest of the podcast from here on out i promise is only mission impossible so your mission if you choose to accept it is to sit there and listen to me talk about mission impossible <laughs> so to start things off i wanted to talk about the franchise as a whole and then we'd lead we'd lead into at the end of the franchise discussion into my review of Mission Impossible Fallout, which of course is the most recent entry in said franchise, right? So let's get started with Mission Impossible One. And I'm gonna read to you guys the kind of very brief synopsis of the various movies, including the actors that are in them, right? So I'm going to go through them really quickly, and then we'll talk about each movie individually, just for a few minutes or so, you know, just so you get caught up on what's going on in the Mission Impossible movie franchise, because it starts all with Mission Impossible. I guess it was just called Mission Impossible, right? It wasn't Mission Impossible 1, although that is what I'll refer to it as for my own benefit. But uh, yeah, we'll start with Mission Impossible 1. came out in 1996. Ethan Hunt, who of course is played by Tom Cruise, as you well know, he is framed for the murder of his fellow IMF agents during a Prague embassy mission, which goes wrong, of course. And, of course, IMF stands for Impossible Mission Task Force or Impossible Mission Force, right? So, and, of course, you know, so he accused of murdering them in some elaborate plot and also accused of selling government secrets to a mysterious criminal known only as Max. And, of course, because he is a badass spy, he kind of reverse engineers their plot, turns it against them, finds out who the real spy is, finds out who's framing him, manages to set up Max in the process. Great movie, honestly. Mission Impossible 2 came out in 2000. Ethan sends international thief Nia Nordafall. I don't actually think they ever say, they say her second, like her second name, her surname, her last name at any point in the movie other than when they introduce her because they just refer to her as Nia, I believe, throughout the whole movie. And, and Nia, of course, is played by Thandie Newton. Uh, Anthony Hopkins actually is in this movie. I completely forgot until I rewatched it recently. And uh, Nia's former lover, Sean Ambrose, uh, Doug Ray Scott, and he steals a deadly virus to start a pandemic and then send, sells the antidote to the highest bidder. This is actually a John Woo film. And you know what? I like John Woo. He's a great director, but this is one trash movie. My goodness. Mission Impossible 2 is not a good film. I really am shocked, and I was talking about this with one of my friends today, that I thought this movie was better than it was in my head, and then I rewatched it for Fallout, and it is quite bad. It's a, it's, it's a trash pile. Really, if you have to watch the movies again, skip this one, because you're not missing out, really. Uh, Mission Impossible 3 came out in 2006, and this is the movie that really a lot of people point to and say, this is when Mission Impossible is kind of remade into what it is today, right? So, of course, Ethan, in this movie, who has now retired from being an IMF leader and he's engaged to be married, he assembles a team to face the arms and broker, information broker Owen Davian, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, of course, has passed away since... And uh, he intends to sell a mysterious object known as the rabbit's foot. And Ethan comes out of retirement so he could rescue his once protege, who's actually played by Carrie Russell in this movie, who, of course, is in, you know, she's in The Americans. And she, apparently she's going to be in the new Star Wars movie, Episode Nine, in uh, next, next uh, Christmas. So that's kind of cool. And, and it was directed by J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams' first feature film as a director. Directorial debut for a J.J. Pretty cool, I thought. Mission Impossible 4, which is also called Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, that came out in 2011, and Ethan and the entire IMF are blamed from the bombing of the Kremlin in Russia while they're investigating an individual known only as Cobalt, which is played by Michael Nyquist, who, of course, also unfortunately has passed away. A very good actor, of course. He was also in John Wick as the, as the bad guy in the first one, right? Ethan and uh, three other agents, of course, Luther and uh, Benji, who are played by Ving Rhames and... 
Simon Pegg, respectively. They left to stop him from starting a global and nuclear war. Jeremy Renner was actually in this one as well, as I recall. And the, the film was directed by Brad Bird, who uh, I just mentioned earlier in the podcast, directed The Incredibles, right? I believe Ghost Protocol was also Brad Bird's first ever, not movie ever, but it was his first movie... Uh, first live-action movie, I should say, because he directs a lot of, uh, you know, animated films, right? But this was his first ever live-action movie, and he has a real eye for action. Honestly, a lot of people say that Ghost Protocol is the best film in the series, and I would say it's now Fallout, but, man, Ghost Protocol had some dizzying sequences, like the sequence where they're in Dubai, and he's, you know, running up and down the outside of the Burj Khalifa, like the, one of the tallest buildings, if not the tallest building in the world, I think it is now, and the camera moves outside the window. It's just, it makes you feel physically sick, and that's amazing. And not in the crappy way that Skyscraper does, but in the really cool, you know, good way, quote-unquote, right? Anyway, so that, there's that, Ghost Protocol. It came out in 2011, like I said. And then the most recent one, before Fallout, of course, was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. That was in 2015, so pretty recently. And Ethan Hunt comes under threat from the Syndicate, an organization of rogue agents who kill on order, right? And, of course, the... Uh, Hunt is faced with the IMF's disbandment due to some circumstances beyond his control, as usual. Hunt assembles his team to not only prove that the syndicate exists, but that they need to bring down the organization by any means necessary. And it was directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who I believe previously collaborated with Tom Cruise in the first Jack Reacher movie. So they knew each other pretty well. He brought in Christopher McQuarrie to direct Rogue Nation. And of course, McQuarrie returned again to direct Fallout. And... Clearly, McQuarrie has a real eye for action, and it really shows, honestly. The guy can really direct a scene. You thought the Burj Khalifa scene in Ghost Protocol was crazy. They do some crazy stuff in Rogue Nation involving a plane. And they somehow manage to one-up themselves with the stunt work in Fallout. Like, it's really, really, really good. It's so much fun to watch, and... I don't want to say I'm picking a winner and loser for the Mission Impossible franchise, but I do think that there are some movies that are better than the others. I mean, Mission Impossible 1, right? Is it a bad movie? No, because it sets the tone for the entire franchise. It also had to do the job of kind of attracting new audience members to watching it because, of course, Mission Impossible was based on a television show, and very famously, a lot of people turned down the role of Jim Phelps, who, of course, turns out to be the evil spy who betrays the team and frames Ethan, right? So, in that sense, it's really interesting to see how the series has evolved since 1996. Of course, it took a real downturn in 2000, but when J.J. Abrams took the helm in 2006, it was on a downward or an upward swing since then, more or less, right? So I think... I think it's clear that you guys know that for me, the worst movie in the series is to, is the 2000 version, the John Woo version, Mission Impossible 2, right? That movie is unbelievably bad. It's not funny. The plot character, the plot, the characters, the a lot of the things are just really cringeworthy, you know? Uh, I mean, the, the movie, the, the, the best part of the movie is the beginning because that's when they kind of... You know, he rips off the mask like we've as we've become used to, and then he, you know, Doug Ray Scott kind of reveals himself to the kind of Albert Einstein looking scientist, and then, you know, after that they meet Tom. We meet the audience meets Tom Cruise as he's rock climbing in somewhere in the United States, and there's this a really funny scene of him like, you know, jumping from rock to rock while this music plays, and then you know they deliver his his your mission should you choose to accept it message and some like rocket from a helicopter and then he picks up the <laughs> he picks up the capsule and cracks it open and he puts his sunglasses on and he goes this message will self-destruct in five seconds and he just like very casually throws it and, and then explodes and leads into the mission impossible theme song and then and then oh right and, and then there's the limp biscuit Mission Impossible Remix, which was just truly atrocious. Like, who thought that needed to be done, right? It's just one of those typical early 2000s thing. Like, I feel like Mission Impossible 2 by John Woo is a true time capsule into the early 2000s. And kind of on that same note, I always wonder, when are we going to get to the point where movies are period pieces, you know, because I think, I believe period piece, I don't know, so don't quote me on this, but I believe period pieces specifically refer to uh, a very specific time period, right? 
But I feel like we're getting far enough away from time periods like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and amazingly enough, even the 90s, that I feel like movies set in those time periods could almost be considered period pieces. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like World War II movies are, even though they are usually classed as war movies, I feel like that movie has such a distinct flavor of its own. And if that's what we're going for, right, if that's that's what the criteria is, right, and the criteria of a period piece is that it has the look, the feel, the taste, and the, you know, the tone, I guess, of the period, then shouldn't movies that take place in more recent times, like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, dare I say the early 2000s, be also considered period pieces? I don't know how, maybe I'm not making a controversial statement, maybe that is actually already the case, maybe I am, because it's not, Either way, I think it should be. You know what I mean? I, and I think in that sense, Mission Impossible 2 would almost definitely be considered an early 2000s period piece with the haircuts and the cars and the faux future technology and like the dialogue. Oh my goodness. Like, so I'll come back for you. I will. I don't know. It, it wasn't great. Although Thandie Newton was a treat to watch, if only because here we are in 2018, 18 years after this movie has come out and she's in solo a star wars story and westworld right like she's the star of these of these well maybe she's at the star of solo certainly she had like five lines and it she dies really early on stupidly enough because she was a great character but in westworld she is the star right and or one of the stars and i mean it's kind of fun to see her she's also in that riddick movie remember chronicles of riddick with uh with uh, uh carl urban and of course uh vin diesel right but regardless i think it's uh pretty funny uh, to see her and she was super young. She looks really different, but still looks really great. And she's a great actress, and I love watching her and things. So, you know what? Maybe it's not all bad. No, what am I kidding? Don't talk yourself into it, show. Don't talk yourself into it. Mission Impossible 2 sucks. We're moving on. Moving on before I talk myself into liking this movie. I, I do that a lot with things. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but Mission Impossible 3, 4, and 5, I, it's hard to differentiate between them for me. I think Mission Impossible 3 is the quote-unquote worst of the new movies if that makes sense, of the uh, 4, 5, and 6, which I guess would be Fallout, right? But I think what it does, Mission Impossible 3, what it does more than any of the other movies, including Fallout, is that it grounds Ethan. And I think the other movies build on the way Ethan is grounded in this one, where he marries Michelle Monaghan's character, Julia, and she is now, you know, he's not just some, you know, floating spy who goes and kills indiscriminately. I mean, he still does that. Don't get me wrong. But I always thought that that whole thing in this movie was, that was a point almost, right? Because the movie starts with you seeing Julia being held hostage by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's really tense. And you wonder to yourself, who is this woman? Who is this guy? The only person we recognize in this scene is Ethan. Why is he captured? Ethan never gets captured. You know, like what, what's going on? Like what? And then, and then he actually shoots her and you think, Oh my God. And then, and then the classic mission impossible theme song music starts. Right. So it was really cool. I, I honestly thought it was a great way to start the movie. JJ Abrams really hooks you at the very beginning Although I just think the rest of the movie is kind of a little blah, right? It's not necessarily it's not necessarily amazing, but it's not necessarily all that bad either. Although, you know what? Funnily enough, Maggie Q is in Mission Impossible 3. Billy Crudup is in Mission Impossible 3. Aaron Paul, very very minor role, though, for Aaron Paul, well before his Breaking Bad days. And, of course, Lawrence Fishburne, he's in it too, right? So they're, they're, Jonathan Reese Mayers is in this movie. Like they had, a, they had a lot of great actors in this movie, and... I just feel like they didn't get a lot to do. Maggie Q, of course, is like the badass, like sexy agent. And there's always one of those kind of characters in every single movie. I mean, it was Emmanuel Bayard in, in, in the first one. It was, I mean, I guess it was kind of Thandie Newton in the in the second one. Maggie Q, it was Paula Patton in, the, in Ghost Protocol. And it was Rebecca Ferguson in Rogue Nation and Fallout. And it's kind of like, it's almost like the Bond girl casting almost. But I almost feel like they're way more capable than the Bond girls. Like Thandie Newton... Maggie Q, Paula Patton especially, and even more especially so, Rebecca Ferguson, they are badasses. Like, they do some crazy stuff in these movies to the point where, if I move on to Ghost Protocol now, Paula Patton is an integral part of their team, and she does some really cool stuff, including beating up Anil Kapoor, who is this kind of sleazy dude. Leah Seydoux is in this movie, too, as kind of the evil Bond girl, as so as, such as it is. And then, you, then of course, you move on to Ghost, or uh, rather, Rogue Nation, and Rebecca Ferguson is a treat. 
Honestly, she is awesome to watch. Like that scene in the opera or whatever where they where they kind of are vying for the same target and she's unfolding this like awesome looking gun and she's in this like crazy dress and she just kicks ass. She has like these knives hidden away everywhere. Like it's just she is one of the coolest characters in any of the films period, right? And then she returns for Fallout and I think one of my favorite parts of Fallout is that where she was where she was a steely badass in the first one she still is in fallout but she has more she's a little more vulnerable in fallout she almost has a reticence to hurt ethan that lends her a little bit more humanity even though she does have some humanity in the first one and her her story is and, and character is very compelling it was really cool to see her come back for fallout and add another dimension to her character, right? Because you know how that doesn't happen very often. When a character returns, it's just more of the same, right? I mean, we get more of Luther, who's been in every single uh, Mission Impossible movie. We get more of Benji, who is, has only seen his role grow. Simon Pegg does a great job, certainly. But, I mean, he's more or less the tech guy and the comic relief, right? And Ving Rhames is like another part of the tech guy and also kind of comic relief, right? So, in that sense, it was cool to see Rebecca Ferguson add a dimension to her her character, Ilsa Faust, which is always really cool. And then there was Fallout. This is easily the best movie in the franchise. I was surprised, maybe not surprised, I always loved the Mission Impossible movies, but I was really kind of taken aback at how much I enjoyed this movie. It's such a wild, thrilling ride from beginning to end. And I think my favorite part of this movie, not in, in terms of any individual scenes, but in terms of the general tone of the movie had is very melancholy almost. Like, you know, it was all tinged by some sadness or some worry that if Ethan doesn't accomplish the mission and get what he needs to get, then the world will end, right? And I feel like even though that there were world-ending stakes before, this one actually felt to the viewer like more of a global risk, I guess. And I, that, that was pretty cool. That's a credit to, of course, again, Christopher McQuarrie, the film's director, and Tom Cruise for doing all the things that needed to be done, especially, you know, all the stunt work. Maybe that. Maybe I should amend that. I don't think necessarily the stunt work needed to be done, but I think we're at a point now where the stunts have become so famous, right? Like the Burj, Khali- the Burj Khalifa thing in Dubai, the plane thing in Ghost Nation. So we're at the point now where if he doesn't do them, it's not really a selling point for the film, right? So now you can say, oh, man... Tom Cruise did Fallout, and he broke his ankle when he filmed, and he cost the movie nine months of film time. They had to delay the production, and oh man, he did a halo jump out of the plane with a, with a guy who strapped an IMAX camera to his head, and oh man, he piloted a helicopter himself, and he did all these complex aerial turns, and it took them two months to film it. Like, all that stuff is material they can use to market the film, and they definitely marketed the crap out of this movie. Commercials have been everywhere. Posters have been everywhere. Tom Cruise himself is obviously a bankable movie star, uh, you know, action phenom. He's been in movies since time began, it seems like, right? But Fallout really is a fantastic movie. And the other thing, the other major positive of this movie is that there's nothing really lulls. There's no, There are no lulls in this movie. Everything kind of clips along at a very nice pace, Every single piece of dialogue is useful. You know, there are some funny parts in it, but for the most part, it's all very urgent, right? And I think that goes along. It's paired well with what I just said about, you know, the whole melancholy world being at risk factor. And, you know, everyone is very kind of staring intently at each other and everyone has some, people have some smarmy lines. And I think the third big check mark for me is Henry Cavill. Now, I've been critical of him for, with Superman, because he's kind of wooden, right? And, I, and I, don't, I don't think it's his fault. I think the Superman movies and the Justice League movies are by and large crappy. And so he's, he is stuck in those crappy movies. I think he's a great Superman. It's just I think they, would let, they should let him be a little more charismatic because he's certainly capable of doing so as we've seen in Man from Uncle and now in Fallout. He is so much fun to watch as a bad guy. Like we, this is the movie where that where the mustache topples Justice League, as they like, as they like to say. Even though I don't necessarily think that's the case, but man, this movie is so much better because Henry Cavill is allowed to be violent. You know, like every step he takes, every movement, August Walker, CIA agent August Walker is his character, and every movement he takes just is brimming with violence, as though violence is just waiting for an excuse to be let loose from his limbs. And it's it's just so cool to watch when he actually lets loose. Like the bathroom scene, bathroom fight scene that we see in the trailer, 
in in the actual movie itself, it is wicked. It is just stunning how much choreography went into it. Apparently, it took them two plus weeks to film, or however many weeks or months or whatever. And it, it I can see why because it's a fantastic fight and there's so many fights like it so many great sequences where you're holding your breath and then once the sequence is over you let it out and you didn't even realize you'd been holding it in in the first place so i think all of that is a testament to how awesome fallout is and i'm actually very excited for this next part because to talk about the rest of fallout and the mission impossible franchise as a whole it's Tim Grierson from Los Angeles of the Grierson and Leach podcast, also the senior U.S. film critic for Screen Daily. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the Showtime Movie Podcast today. That was my pleasure, show. How you doing? Good. Uh, I hope you're doing okay out in L.A. And uh, thank you again for coming on to talk about Mission Impossible, the new franchise, the new movie, Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth entry in this series. Can you believe it? Six movies so far. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because I, I still remember very vividly Mission Impossible 3 coming out in 2006, and you know it sort of underperformed, and there was sort of this idea of, oh, I guess, I guess Tom Cruise is kind of over as a movie star. There is so much concern that the franchise was dead, and, and he as, a, as an A-list movie star, like that was kind of over, and there's a lot of kind of... Uh, concern and anguish about what's going to happen to Tom Cruise. You know, it's 12 years later. He's still making Mission Impossible movies. People still want to see them. I mean, he has his kind of commercial up and downs, but, um, yeah, Mission Impossible movies, people will still want to see him in those films. I, I recently kind of, in preparation for Fallout, rewatched the series, starting back with 1996, right? And... I feel like if fans of Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation and, of course, now Fallout when it comes out tomorrow, I feel like if they looked back on the ones from 1996 and again in 2000, they would find it difficult to recognize the series at all. And then again, you just mentioned the 2006 movie and it kind of underperformed as well. So what, what elements of those two films do you think are, are present in the Mission Impossible movies of, of today, of 2018, let's say? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, once uh, we get done doing this, I'm probably going to rewatch the first one because it's been a while uh, for me too. But I like I remember the, the first one and the second one coming out, and you know I think the thing that has remained, the thing that Brian De Palma and like the slew of different like A-list writers they had on that first movie, the, the things that have remained as part of the franchise is this idea of almost building the movie around really cool action sequences and that those are kind of the showstoppers for the movie. I think there's also this idea and De Palma sort of talked about this that he wanted that first movie to have sort of this international globe trotting kind of flavor to it. And I think that that is something that has sort of remained it's the one element that makes the Mission Impossible movies beyond the fact that it's about just spies, obviously, has made it the most seem like a James Bond movie in that they do kind of travel from place to place to place. Like the Bourne movies, the Jason Bourne films did that a little bit as well, obviously. But this idea in that, like the first one and the second Mission Impossible movies of we're going to go to uh, this gorgeous city and we're going to go to this gorgeous city and like blow stuff up and do chase scenes around it, that was sort of established in the first two movies, and this is not a spoiler for, for Fallout, but as you can imagine, they do something very similar in the new movie as well. It's true. They they really they really embraced in the first few movies the globetrotting element, and I, I always felt that Ethan, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, that he started out as James Bond, and now with the latter few movies... Ever since he met, I guess, Michelle Monaghan's character in the third one, that he's become a little more grounded than James Bond, right? I mean, James Bond certainly has changed over the years with Daniel Craig and the different iterations of the character. But since we've only ever seen Tom Cruise, it's interesting to see his character evolve over the, you know, 22, 22 years that they've been doing this franchise for. Yeah, I think they've definitely wanted to kind of play up the humanness of the character, which is funny to say because whether it's Ghost Protocol or Rogue Nation or the new movie, uh, the Ethan Hunt character does things that any uh, mere mortal, if they try, would die several times over. So he's both like superhuman, but he's also um, they have tried to make him like like you said, show kind of like really grounded at the same time. 
which I think uh, has helped. I think especially as Tom Cruise gets older, he's in his mid-50s now, the, the more that he seems uh, relatable uh, and more kind of like vulnerable in certain ways, I think that helps. There's also a little bit of that uh, in the new movie as well, where they they try to definitely kind of play up the fact that, you know, he's a... He's an older guy. Like he's not, you know, he's not somebody who's in his twenties and can do the same types of things that he uh, used to. In terms of other things that have also, I was thinking that uh, are still there from the first films. Uh, the great, the great conceit of people having awesome masks and pulling off the mask to reveal who they really are. <laughs> um, that all, like that's a thing that was from the very beginning, and that's um, it, it's such a. It feels like such a, a antiquated old school movie trope, right? This idea of the pull off the mask. Oh my God, it's so and so, and and yet there's that part of me that really kind of just loves um, that. It feels so like classic in a certain way, um, and that's been kind of a consistent thing throughout the movies. Uh, there's a little bit of that, of course, in the new one um, as well. I, I, Fallout. I'll just say I, I think it's really. It's among the best of the series. I really think it's it's quite good. I agree with you. It was a it was a wild ride, and I think uh, on the masks note, I I thought that it was funny that they kind of, I guess to an extent, lampoon the idea of the fact that they've been wearing masks throughout the entire series to the point now where they outright mention it and it becomes a plot point itself, which is kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, on another note, you kind of mentioned it, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but Tom Cruise seemingly has never really been lumped, at least currently, into the same category as, let's say, Denzel Washington and Liam Neeson when it comes to the, you know, quote-unquote, old man action hero, right? I mean, I read uh-huh, your, right. your review of The Equalizer 2, and I saw that one as recently as well, and, you know, that movie really, I think, embraces the idea that Denzel Washington is in his 60s now, and Tom Cruise, like you mentioned, he's 56, he turned 56 earlier this month, so, I mean... Is it is it simple? Is it as simple to say he doesn't get lumped in with them because he just doesn't look that old? Um, I think it helps. I, I mean, I'm not sure, and I don't presume to know that if he's had any work done or anything. But he looks great. I mean, he looks really, really good. And yeah, I think that is fair to say that you you don't think of him. He's not going to be cast in any of the Expendables movies anytime soon. Like he just doesn't have that kind of uh, kind of grizzled, but also that not that like aging bodybuilder look that a lot of those guys like Stallone and Dolph Lundgren and those guys also have. He still seems relatively um, n- normal sized in terms of, of, uh, of like his physique and also his face and like that. And so when you watch uh, Fallout, you don't go like good for him, you know, doing all these stunts at his age. I, I think the movies, and I think it's a credit to what Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director, has done in these last two movies, especially, you don't look at them and think um, that, that they are working around an older actor who can't do these stunts. The, the, the world that those movies create, create an impression of that he can absolutely do the things uh, that he's doing, and... I think that might be partly to do, I'm, I'm sort of thinking this out loud right now, but because there's such an emphasis on uh, practical effects and practical stunts as much as possible, I don't know if that's part of of what makes it seem uh, like Tom Cruise can do the things that he does, because they, they basically put him in stunt sequences that still feel in blockbuster terms, relatively believable, as yeah, opposed fair. to like some, I can say, I suppose like some of the other like action movies with actors who are older than Cruise, they'll put them in sequences, and then put them in with so much CG and other types of effects where you're like, there's no way this person can do this. I can tell it's phony. Most of the stuff in Fallout feels um, believable enough and feels harrowing enough that you actually sort of worry for him. And so I think that may be part of it, that there's a, that how they've done that um, has sort of helped Tom Cruise from feeling like he's part of the 
sort of AARP uh, list of uh, action movie stars. <laughs> it's true. He's not. A, it's funny you mention that because, uh, of course, Skyscraper recently came out, and I mean that that movie is full of stuff like CGI kind of stunts, like The Rock jumping from the crane over a I don't even know how much space into a burning building, right? And I feel like as as entertaining as that is, you you look at that and you go. Yeah, I don't know that I believe that as much as I believe, which is crazy to say, but as much as I believe Tom Cruise climbing up a rope onto a moving helicopter and then, like, piloting the helicopter through a series of crazy sequences, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, because a lot of people understandably will make fun of the fact that Tom Cruise is always talking about, yeah, like, I did this stunt myself, and I did that stunt myself, and people kind of make fun of him about how he's so, like, excited to tell people that he does his own stunts still. But at the same time, I think it, it does make a difference as a viewer. I mean, you know that Ethan Hunt is not going to die. You know that Tom Cruise ended up okay doing these stunts, so I think he broke his ankle on this one or whatever. But while watching the movie, I think it is impossible as a viewer to not take that into account while you watch the film. Because, yeah, like the skyscraper thing, that sequence you just watch and go, oh, listen, there was some really good... Uh, uh, the, the the computer technicians who did put the <laughs> sequence together. And and I think that gives you a disconnect from what you are watching, whereas the, the stuff in Fallout um, is really, really well done in such a way that not only the sequence is cool and exciting and heart racing and all that type of stuff, but it feels it feels real. You, you Your mind is able to make the leap to go, I could buy that this is actually happening, as opposed to the disconnect, I think, that we often have in movies now, where we sort of, like, almost take a sigh and go, okay, here comes the CG now. And it's all CG. It's all digital. And so you just have a different emotional experience uh, from what you're watching. I mean, for me, I, you know, I saw this in a packed house uh, fallout, and it's you know two and a half hours long. But while I was watching it, people got invested. You could see people sort of leaning forward as the action sequences were happening because it's they get sort of hooked in. It's not that other movies can't do this, but the Mission Impossible movies really do that well. And let me ask you this then. Uh, one of the last ones I'll, let, I'll ask you before I let you go. The fight scenes in this movie and the action sequences like we're talking about are pretty thrilling, of course, and they capture the audience's attention pretty well. In terms of where they stack up, without spoiling them, in terms of where they stack out up with the, let's say, the plane sequence or the underwater sequence from Grogue Nation or the, you know, the running up and down the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and Ghost Protocol, where would you, in your opinion, put the stunts of Fallout when ranked with the Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation stunts? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, the, the, the building, the skyscraper um, in in. Ghost Protocol. I mean, I, you know, as a very quick story, I, when I reviewed Ghost Protocol, they insisted, the studio insisted that we see it at a true IMAX, actually the IMAX facility. So it was like a like foot-to-head entire like wall screen. When that sequence happened, I have never had this happen to me before and haven't had it happen since. My, like, palms like burst into sweat because it was so when they when he steps out and the camera goes outside the building it's just unbelievable that to me is the best i don't think they're ever going to top that though they've done their best to try uh to do it i think that the sequences in this one because i love rogue nation and ghost protocol and fallout the most of the mission impossible movies to me they're kind of all tied for first. I think that these action sequences in the new movie are comparable. I think there is one, I don't want to spoil anything, I think there is a chase, I think there's a couple chases in this movie of very different kinds that are really exceptional, that are really, really, really well done. Um, Does one of them involve running? Maybe, because another (laughs) thing that's great about Tom Cruise movies is that he runs. It's not. That's not a spoiler. I, I think. This, I, I think. I think people would be mad if I said there is no running. Exactly. I think people. I'll tell you this. I, a friend of mine who hasn't seen Fallout yet. You know, I came back from the screening and I wrote my review and then I saw him later, and he said, "So how was it?" And, I, and he's a big Tom Cruise uh, fan, my friend. And I said, "Don't worry. 
he runs, and he was so happy. My friend was so happy. Yeah, the, the, there's a couple chase sequences in this, I think, that are really, really um, great. They're really, really well done. Um, and I think, I think also just as a, as a writer, McQuarrie is just really good at balancing the different characters that are in this thing and uh, a plot that's obviously very sort of twisty and there's double crosses and surprises and fun things that happen. Um, it, it, it all it all kind of works together pretty seamlessly. So may, is it, nothing's as good as that as that tower walk. I mean that is just unbelievable. But um, there were a few times during this movie that I was really happy. And put it this way, I'm actually going to go see it again uh, since my wife hasn't seen it and she's also a big Mission Impossible fan. As I was watching it the first time, I thought. Oh, I get to watch this again a week with my wife. I can't wait. So I'm, I'm, yeah. It's it's really good. This new movie. It's true. There are not there are not that very many movies that come out in a summer season where I go to myself. I would love to see this movie again in such a short period of time. And I'm actually taking my dad. It's his birthday in, uh, next week, so I'm going to take him to see it in IMAX. He and he's a huge Tom Cruise fan, so he can't wait. <laughs> so I'm excited. Oh, that's to... awesome. I just just an IMAX alone. I'm very envious of you, show. <laughs> you guys are going to get to because uh, I have not seen it yet. Uh, it yet that way but yeah i mean if people are listening and uh, it'd be hard to imagine that anybody would be on the fence at this point because i figure you're either you're either kind of a tom cruise fan at this point or you're not and you know that about your about yourself but if you can see it on the biggest screen possible definitely treat yourself there's a lot of summer movies you don't need to do that with and i don't think you need to see this in 3d i don't know if you saw it in 3d i did not i, did not. I don't I, I don't. In general, I feel like 3D doesn't really enhance uh, that much of the experience. But I'd say you skip the 3D, but the biggest screen that you can—that's the way to go. I know. I would agree. Tim Grierson of the Grierson and Leach podcast, senior U.S. critic for Screen Daily, joining us again on the show today. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, that was Tim Grierson of the Grierson and Leach podcast, senior U.S. film critic for Screen Daily. Thanks again to Tim for joining me on the Showtime Movie Podcast. Always fun to have a guest on, don't you think? It's always fun to have someone to talk to. I know you guys love hearing the sultry sound of my voice for every pretty much uh, episode, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's always fun to have someone else to talk to, whether it's someone like... Mark Gujan, who's come on before, or Mark Stanush, who's come on before. A lot of Marks come on this podcast. Wow, I never actually thought about that out loud before until literally just now. But anyways, that is it for me. I'm not actually sure what movies are next, to be completely honest. Maybe the Christopher Robin movie with Ewan McGregor. I don't actually know what's next this summer. I made a list, and it's not in front of me. And you know what? I think it's more fun when I don't know, because... I've seen some fun gems. Maybe that uh, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, that movie came out. Of course, the Leave No Trace film, which we reviewed in the last episode, that movie actually was a surprise. When I, my friend Quentin Emerson, who has also been on this podcast, he kind of sprung that one on me. So there's also uh, the Klansman movie, the Spike Lee movie with uh, Denzel Washington's kid from Ballers. You know, that movie's coming out as well with uh, Adam Driver's in it too, I believe. So... You know, you know what? There are some good movies on the horizon. I don't know when they're coming out specifically, but there are some good ones coming up in the future. But for now, as always, thank you for listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. This has been episode 27. Thank you for listening. Have a good night. <laughs>